I think it's appropriate to open up this episode with a quote from Bob Dylan about Johnny Cash. This is from September 26, 2003, after hearing about the death of Johnny Cash. Truly, he is what the land and country is all about. The heart and soul of it personified in what it means to be here. And he said it all in plain English. I think we can have recollections of him, but we can't define him any more than we can define a fountain of truth, light, and beauty. If we want to know what it means to be mortal, we need to look no further than the man in black. Blessed with a profound imagination, he used the gift to express all the various lost causes of the human soul. This is a miraculous and humbling thing. Listen to him, and he always brings you to your senses. He rises high above all, and he'll never die or be forgotten, even by persons not born yet, especially those persons. And that is forever. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Pete Finney. Pete is a steel guitar player who's played with everybody from Doug Somm to Patti Loveless, and he's also the co-curator of the Dylan Cash and the Nashville Cats exhibit at the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum. You can find out everything you need to know about that exhibit at countrymusichalloffame.org. I've known Pete for a little while now, and I see him out around Nashville. You know, and he's one of those guys that has a lot of great stories, a lot of stuff about history, things that he was involved in. And you know how I love stories. But he's the co-curator of this Dylan Cash and the Nashville Cats exhibit at the Hall of Fame. And man, I really, really strongly urge you, if you come to Nashville, stop into the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum and, and check out this exhibit. It's running through the end of 2016, and it's it's a good one. But Pete was nice enough to invite me over to his kitchen here in East Nashville. We sat down, and he shared a whole bunch of stories about everything in that exhibit. And there's a lot to get to, so I'm going to jump out of the way, and we'll get right to it. Here's Pete Finney. Most of what I'm saying is from memory. I could look up my notes section by section. The other issue is Dylan had, as he often did, had sort of contradictory comments. You can sort of pull out quotes to to reinforce whatever it is you want to say about him. Uh, he clearly was aware of cash around the in the early sun years in the same way he went from being interested in Hank Williams to also getting into Elvis and all that. He was clearly aware of cash. But the way their relationship started was also quite early, but Cash initiated it, which is, uh, they were both on Columbia Records. Uh, they later shared a producer, but they didn't then. Um, 
Dylan's second album, Freewheeling Bob Dylan, came out, and uh, Johnny Cash had a copy, and it's pretty well documented. He had a portable record player that he carried on the road, and he listened to Freewheeling Bob Dylan, which, and again, we have to remember that the, to some extent, the folk worlds and the country music worlds were uh, pretty separated. Cash, even then, had a little bit of a foot in both and certainly had respect in the folk world. But the idea that Johnny Cash sent Bob Dylan a fan letter saying that he really loved, he thought, he later said, I don't know if it was in this letter, he, he later said, I thought he was one of the best country singers I'd ever heard. There was just so much country, and we're talking, when we say country, we're talking more Roy Acuff and uh, 30s and Uncle Dave Macon and that kind of country. We're not talking fair and young Ray Price country, obviously. Um, okay, so in a, in a later interview, Johnny Cash talked about uh, his introduction to Bob Dylan, and I'll, uh, I have a little quote of that which says it better than I could. I became aware of Bob Dylan when the Freewheeling album came out in 1963. I thought he was one of the best country singers I'd ever heard. I always felt a lot in common with him. I knew a lot about him before we ever met. I knew he had heard and listened to country music. I heard a lot of inflections from country artists I was familiar with. I got a letter back and we developed a correspondence. So this is Cash talking about how he initiated the correspondence with Dylan in late 63. Yeah, there's another quote that uh, we use in our in the Dylan Cash Museum exhibit. It's Cash saying, when I first met Dylan, he told me that when he was coming up, all that was out, the only thing out there that he was interested in was Hank Williams and Johnny Cash. Yeah, Dylan made arrangements to meet Cash. I'm pretty sure they met for the first time in late 63 in New York. But the really, the prominent and sort of almost legendary meeting was the 1964 Newport Folk Festival. Uh, Eric Anderson, who is, uh, you know, a contemporary of Dylan's basically and sort of f followed various places Dylan went in his career uh, throughout, tells a story of... of Dylan coming to get him and saying, you got to come here, Johnny Cash. you got to come meet Johnny Cash. He's backstage. And uh, Eric Anderson came back and said, this this would have been during Cash's uh, prescription drug abuse days. And he said he was wired. He looked like a marionette. He was so jerky and moving so <laughs> You can sort of hear it. There's a, there's a release. There's a recording of Cash at uh, Newport in 64. He did not perform with Dylan. But they hung out backstage. Um, there was a party back in somebody's hotel room. Somebody had a tape recorder. I believe some of the Carter family were there, probably, no doubt some of Dylan's buddies, Joan Baez. Uh, basically a guitar pull, I'm sure they sang. And, and uh, Dylan sang, It Ain't Me, Babe, and uh, Mama, You've Been On My Mind into a tape recorder because they were as yet unreleased. I think he'd performed them and maybe Cash had expressed an interest. And Cash recorded both of those songs and another Dylan song by the end of 1964. And uh, Cash also famously gave Dylan uh, one of his Martin guitars, which is a, an age-old sign of respect and sort of passing the torch in some you know, country and folk traditions. So that was a big moment. And again, Cash had just had a huge hit with uh, Ring of Fire after a bit of a lull, and it was, I believe it was a pop hit as well, and it had the mariachi trumpets. He went in the studio not long after that, that fall, and recorded It Ain't Me, Babe, which is essentially a duet with June Carter, though it's not uh, credited that way. And it has the exact same mariachi horn 
sounds is, uh, I mean, clearly, <laughs> and it was released as a single and it was, uh, Columbia had a big advertising campaign. Uh, here's a new song by Bob Dylan as sung by Johnny Cash, It Ain't Me, Babe. And it was a country hit that crossed over to the pop charts in uh, 1960, early 65, I think. And though it was hardly a rock song, it did have electric instruments and probably drums on it, which means it predates the birds Mr. Tambourine Man as an electric Bob Dylan song on pop radio. That's a little bit of trivia, but it's kind of interesting. So Cash's relationship and friendship with Dylan continued certainly after the Newport Folk Festival. We, there were certainly meetings. Uh, There's a filmed backstage duet of Dylan and Cash together. I think it's, I still miss someone, but I could be misremembering. It's, it's, it's in the, boot, the bootleg of Eat the Document, and it's uh, neither of them are at their best. There's a reason it's never been released. It's Cash and Dylan singing together casually. And I had thought that that was from the later uh, sessions in Nashville when I'd seen right. it before, but um, I do remember Cash looking very rough right that's that it's the dylan 66 tour with the band in england which has been some of the footage showed up th that duet may have shown up in the uh martin scorsese documentary it was the first place the film footage they shot of the 66 tour in england which was meant to be an abc tv show it's been bootlegged as eat the document for years but i think the first time any of that footage was used in an official way was in the the really good martin scorsese uh the four-hour Dylan documentary, and I don't know if the Cash duet is in there or not. I know there are members of the Cash family that would be happy if it wasn't seen. It was a sort of a private moment. It wasn't meant for public consumption, but they were they were still friends. There are other there's a photo of them meeting backstage at a Cash concert, I think, in '65. So throughout the late '60s, as Dylan's career was skyrocketing, and he's making you know he made three great albums in what, 18 months. They stayed in touch, but they were both pretty busy in their own worlds. And then Dylan, of course, kind of disappeared in, in uh, late 66 and 67, where the, the basement tapes came out of that, where he sang a lot of Johnny Cash songs, and as well as Hank Williams. To me, the basement tapes, which have gotten a lot of attention since they were released in, almost in full officially last year and are nominated for a Grammy and all that, the, as a quasi-historian of, of country music history and and Dylan as seen through a Nashville lens the basement tapes are sort are really the missing link between helping people see that Dylan had never lost his interest in country music he always said Hank Williams was his first and maybe biggest influence he was into cash and all that and like most people of his age and his generation immediately jumped into Elvis and Little Richard and Buddy Holly when that came along. But he never lost his interest for country music. You can There are pictures of him, there are film of him backstage singing like a current Bill Anderson song, 3 a.m. in 1965. Who would have thought that Bob Dylan at the peak of his, you know, counterculture guru era was staying, he could sing all the way through a current country song. So you, the, the pictures you see of him in a station wagon, you know, driving across, they were listening to country radio and he was aware he never lost the interest. This is where I could get into trouble uh, saying things that, you know, serious Dylan scholars uh, might take exception with. My best understanding of what happened is Dylan was recording with his usual gang of musicians, plus a few others. It was Kenny Buttry, Charlie McCoy, Pete Drake, in this case, on steel guitar. Charlie Daniels played guitar. Bob Wilson on keyboards. 
uh, probably Norman Blake, who also recorded with Johnny Cash. That's probably an important uh, connection there. I'm quite sure some people came by to visit. Dylan was in town. He was seeing people that he knew. John Stewart and Fred Neal were recording right down the street. I know there was some interaction there, people coming and going. I think Johnny Cash was just sort of dropping in. My best understanding is that he came to one of the last Dylan sessions where Dylan was working on Nashville Skyline, and they sang one or two songs together. I'm not sure if he sang. I would want to think that he sang those songs with the band that Dylan had there, which was not... They, are, they had probably all worked with Johnny Cash at one time or another, but Cash typically recorded with his touring band, the Tennessee Three with some additional players and the Carter family, often the Carter sisters. Cash came in, they sang one or two songs at a Dylan session, and it was fun, and they arranged to come back, I believe, the next day and do it more formally. And as, as their producer, Bob Johnston, who's another, that's a very important common link, a guy who he'd been producing Johnny Cash he actually produced Dylan first and then started producing Cash. Uh, very, Bob Johnson, a very important figure in both Dylan and Cash's career. He, he's the one that, when he started producing Cash, Cash had been talking about doing a live in prison album because he'd been doing prison shows and the label thought that was a kiss of death and strongly discouraged him. And when uh, Bob Johnson came along, he said, sure, let's do it. And it became live in Folsom Prison, which broke Cash's career open to a whole new audience, somewhat to the counterculture, to a pop audience, to a, and then the follow-up, Sam Quentin, which did even more. So Bob Johnson was responsible for that. So he had Cash's trust. He'd been producing all of Dylan's albums since uh, most of Highway 61. So he had Dylan's trust. So his role in how they came to be in a studio together. But they set up, basically set up all the microphones and just let the tapes roll. And they did a mixture of a few old Dylan songs, a few of Cash's old songs. Clearly, with one exception, there, there's one song, there's, there's a video of uh, One Too Many Mornings. There's a video from a Johnny Cash documentary, and we use it in our Hall of Fame exhibit of Dylan and Cash in the studio singing One Too Many Mornings. And you can tell they spent a little bit of time talking about arrangement because it changes key because of the two registers of the two voices not matching it changes keys from one section to the other so there's clearly some forethought but it's also pretty ragged and uh, the video of them when they hear the playback the, the tail end of it it's so loose it's playful it's loose in a fun way and it is fun to hear but cash just cracks up at it um they recorded girl from the no north country which was the opening track on Nashville Skyline. And it sounds like they spent a little bit of time discussing it. It was a Dylan song that went all the way back to uh, the Freewheeling album that had first turned Johnny Cash onto it. And it's a very straightforward country love song. It's not, which Dylan had done all along. And it's, people were like, well, he switched from doing oblique or politically tinged or poetic rambling things full of imagery to simple country lyrics. Well. He, Again, that's an oversimplification. He'd written some simple, straightforward, fairly unambiguous love songs early on. And this was one of them. And I think it was a conscious tie back for both of them. This is where we got to know each other. Here's a song we both like. There's a great Bob Johnston interview Sylvie Simmons did floating around out there somewhere that uh, he says that uh, Mother Maybell Carter was there and uh, June Carter. People were just shouting out requests right. and they would do them. It just right. sounded like 
people having fun at night and not really thinking they were making an album. Right. And they definitely, I don't think there was a sense they were making an album. They were having fun. They were recording. And you see where it goes. And the fact that they chose one song that seemed, and they may have, they may have consciously said, let's put a little more effort in this one song and, and have it be something to release. But it was mostly two guys having fun and just happened to be in a studio. Probably was not that much different in spirit than playing in a hotel room, you know, a guitar pool. I think it was probably that vibe. But it was it was definitely, I'm not sure who played on the, the first few songs they recorded at the tail end of the Dylan session, but the, the later stuff, the bulk of this, which again is still only available on bootleg, it's never been officially released. Um, and I, I believe that is, I'm sure Johnny Cash has been quoted as saying that stuff wasn't good enough to release. It was just for fun. <laughs> Dylan, I believe, has been quoted as saying the same thing. Yeah, I wouldn't want it released. It was just Bob Johnston, who's so important to all of us, and he, he passed away last year. Very, very important guy, but he's also prone to, he was not shy about self-promotion and, and the older he got the stories he told got a little more elaborate I don't, i'll leave it at that but he said all the you know we wanted to put that out and just the label wouldn't let us and we should have put that out and why well the two primary artists that are singing on it didn't want it out it's 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 an it's a fun document it's not something as much as i love both of those guys you know if i want to listen to either of them that's not something i put on it's a very it's very fun listen but it's right. not the sort of thing i think i've right. listened to more than three times dylan was recording nashville skyline here in february 1969 columbia studios which is where cash had been recording for years and years and years it was dylan's third nashville album the first was blonde on blonde which had virtually no country influence at all even though they were the young players who made much of their living play on country records. They also played a lot of R&B. The next Dylan album here was John Wesley Harding, which was sort of a return to a simpler, folkier sound, but also introduced the steel guitar on the last two songs, which was commonly and correctly, I think, seen as a precursor to the next album. Very simple country-ish. In some places, almost a parody of, of pop country songwriting of the day. And with the steel guitar added was an unabashedly, this is where Dylan came out as a fan of country music. And it, I think people hearing the last two songs on that record was like, what is this? He's rhyming moon and June and spoon and singing about love. And there's nothing ambiguous in the lyrics. And it sounds like country music. And of course, the next album he did was Nashville Skyline, where he went simpler lyrics, a very smooth crooning vocal sound. In terms of the counterculture and rock and roll and perceptions and the fact that he had Nashville in the title, which is something he consciously fought for, the label didn't want him to have Nashville in the title. They thought it would limit the counterculture and rock and roll world. Again, not to keep getting back to that, but the perceptions of what Nashville and country music represented at the, at the time of the Vietnam War on one side and you know George Wallace and fairly reactionary right-wing southern politics on the other hand the perceptions in the counterculture world that that dylan represented whether he liked it or not he really didn't much care to represent that the perceptions of that world of a country record made in nashville were like what is he thinking and if people took their faith in dylan as some kind of you know figurehead or leader of some movement it was almost a sense of betrayal to some people. And then 
top that off, the record opens with a duet with Johnny Cash and has liner notes written by Johnny Cash. And this symbolism of that was huge. And again, some of that is imposed from outside. For Dylan and Cash, they were old friends. They had a lot of musical tastes in common. It was a really natural thing to do. They didn't, it wasn't a career move. It wasn't, let's bring our two worlds together. It's, let's get together and have some fun. But the whole perception of Nashville as a place to record is like the understanding in, in, you know, 66, 67, 68 was a real golden age for popular music. Things were just going crazy in every direction. The Beatles were making something different every time they went in the studio. Stones, the Beach Boys, it was just, you look back, all the, you know, the best album, rock albums ever made, an awful lot of them come out of just a few short years there. And the perceptions then was that San Francisco was alive and exciting. There was the San Francisco sound, and there was the Grateful Dead, and the Jefferson Airplane, and the whole scene there. And there was L.A., and you had the Beach Boys, and later the Doors, and you had all these things. And London was happening, and New York was happening. And to that world, Nashville was like out of consideration. Nashville was where formulaic songs about cheating and divorce and all that, a whole different culture. I, this, this is music I love now. This this story we're talking about is why I'd be... I, been a country musician for 40 years so i'm looking at this from what the perspectives were then is that nashville just didn't belong in consideration when you talked about where all the hip exciting music was happening but dylan was the first to make the breach but working musicians in every form of music from the beatles to you know people in, to jerry garcia in san francisco i'm naming the ones that i know they knew that if you wanted really really good incredible musicianship whether it's chops whether it's about speed or about knowledge that nashville was full of those kind of players in fact the, the song nashville cats was a hit by the love and spoonful john sebastian it's where it's it's where the slang for using nashville cats to talk about uh nashville studio musicians came from and it's we used it incorporated it into our exhibit title it's dylan cash and the nashville cats who knew New Nashville. That song was inspired by and John Sebastian. I, I don't. This is a paraphrase, but it's very close. He said, "What if all these people find out that the, these like unknown musicians in Nashville and, and Memphis play better than any of us like rock and roll guys?" And he wrote the song about that, about extolling the qualities of Nashville musicians. Dylan actually came here and made one of the most important rock records of all time, and most critics estimations and in mine made blonde on blonde with guys who were 23 and 24 and were playing on porter wagner records and earl's you know flat and scruggs records and all these kind of country records but they were playing most of them were dylan's age they'd grown up they were playing r&b for fun and a lot of them in clubs right down the street from where we're talking right now and playing jimmy reed and maybe early motown they knew all that music that Dylan liked. And so the, the important point to make here is not only were these guys incredibly skilled, they were used to, you go in a studio at 10 in the morning with some of the older legendary guitar players like a Grady Martin or, or a Chet Atkins. And those guys, you know, they didn't fool around. When the red light went on, the recording light went on, you were expected to play a record quality take on a song you might have just heard. So here you have these young guys who were capable of doing that. And most of what they did was country records or maybe the pop records at the time, a Brenda Lee or a Roy Orbison or something like that, which is obviously great, great music. Dylan coming here made it cool to look at Nashville and say, oh, he came here. And again, he was 
rightly or wrongly looked up to as some kind of like seer and prophet and all this stuff, which is kind of crazy. But the fact that he would come here made a lot of people look twice. And within a year or two, especially after he did John Wesley Harding, where he, he broached the actual country sound for the first time. Within six months, the birds came here and did Sweetheart of the Rodeo, going into a totally country sound. Joan Baez came here and made an album of Dylan songs that if you took off her vocal and just listened to the instrumentation, could be a Loretta Lynn record. It was all the same players, and they played straight-ahead country, which is what Baez wanted. But when you mix that with her folk sensibility and a bunch of Bob Dylan songs, you have a whole new hybrid. That album, any day now, it's not remembered that much now, but it outsold you know, Sweetheart of the Rodeo, which everybody cites now as their... George Harrison loved what Pete Drake played on the Bob Dylan records, flew him to London to play in All Things Must Pass, which was both the most critically acclaimed and the most commercially successful of all the Beatles. You know, the early breakup of the Beatles and everybody put out solo records. His... And it had the influence of Nashville all over it, which brought later brought Ringo came here to do a country album, and then Paul McCartney later came. So, at this point, the story becomes Dylan making people realize how great the players were here, being willing to take a second chance, and I, I think he's the main catalyst for the sort of it was a golden age in Nashville. Cash's success with his live prison albums so huge he got offered a network tv show and he insisted that they do it in nashville the network would have preferred he did it in la or new york he insisted on doing it to rhyme and auditorium he insisted on announcing it at the beginning from nashville tennessee and the other thing that cash did that was so important is that he went out of his way to bring in the same kind of left of center outside artists that were coming here to record Nobody on ABC TV wanted a Neil Young or a Bob Dylan or, or a Pete Seeger who'd been blacklisted on TV. And Cash, there's film footage in our exhibit of Cash and talking about how he insisted. They said, we don't want Pete Seeger. You know, he's been in trouble for we don't get into the politics or whatever of that. But um, he represented, again, he represented a really something that was perceived as being... 180 degrees opposed from what Nashville and country music represented, but he was a good friend of Cash. Cash didn't recognize those boundaries. They played music together. It was about music. And musicians tend to not recognize those boundaries, and this is illustrated again and again by Joan Baez came here. She was, I mean, sort of famously left-leaning, but she not only marched with Martin Luther King like people would sometimes do for a photo op, she was in strategy meetings with him. She was a, a key player in the civil rights and integration struggles and something that we all take for granted now, even in here in the South, which is like, it's a good thing all that happened. But at the time it was very, she was a very controversial figure and she came to Nashville to record in 1968 and George Wallace, who represented the opposite. He was the arch, you know, segregation now, segregation forever. Uh, governor of Alabama, he ran for president and she came here and half the musician, you know, there were musicians who had George Wallace, bumper stickers on their cars or guitar cases and they overcame that you get these stories she said i didn't know what to expect i was kind of nervous going down there but i knew they were great players and they were like we thought she was some kind of weird hippie chick and <laughs> we didn't know what and, and they all said this is a universal story and it comes up over and over and over with all these different artists from the birds to nitty-gritty dirt band for sure there was some kind of distrust based on you know the country people 
didn't know about these long haired guys coming in from Los Angeles and the Los Angeles guys thought, God, there's going to be people running around and, you know, KKK and sheets and stuff. There were all these prejudices going around in almost every case. And this is what I love about this whole story and what I personally want to explore further. It's almost every one of these stories ends up with people saying, by the time we'd played music for a day or we all went out to eat and, and Joan Bias famously said, I would, by the end of the first day, said, I love these guys. I would have taken a bullet for any one of them. And she came back four or five times. She recorded her next four or five albums here leading up to Blessed R, which had the night they drove Old Dixie down, which was all Nashville players. It was her, her big radio pop hit. Um, that story gets repeated over and over and over about how important bridging these boundaries was whether it was important in a conscious way or just a natural thing for Cash, I think it was. I think he realized he had to pull some strings to make this happen. But the very first show he had, here's this country icon who's just found a new bigger pop audience. He's making network primetime variety show, which is the kind of thing where you're supposed to have, you know, Bob Hope and Don Rickles, and you're supposed to really appeal to everybody and have an orchestra and be slick and all that. And he had some of those elements. Um, but the very first show, he had Bob Dylan's first TV appearance, and Dylan famously hated TV and been on once or twice early on and swore to never do it again. And Cash really had to talk him into it, and they were such good friends. He said, I'd really like it if you would do the show for me. And they just finished. He had brand-new sort of country material to use, and Dylan took all the guys who'd played on his records, who are, are sort of our key Nashville cats, so Kenny Buttry and Charlie McCoy and those guys. And Joni Mitchell was on and sang a duet with Johnny Cash on a Johnny Cash show. And to some of Joni Mitchell's fans, she was still the, you know, the long, straight hair folk princess there. She hadn't gone through all the other permutations. But she was a, you know, a big figure in that world. And here she is singing a duet with Johnny Cash on a Johnny Cash song and making it very clear that this was natural to her. And it was probably a song she'd been singing all her career. But those those stories of music overcoming the exaggerated cultural differences of the time and maybe you know we have exaggerated cultural differences now too and political differences you know maybe there's a lesson to be learned there maybe. i do urge you to check out dylan cash and the nashville cats a new nashville it's an exhibit at the country music hall of fame and they'll be running through all of 2016 if you go to their website or to amazon or one of those places there's an exhibit book by that name that tells a story in a little more detail in a slightly different way and there's a two cd uh, companion cd that has a lot of this music on it a lot more um, which just got named in the national music country music critics poll just got named the number one reissue of the year and actually beat out bob dylan's own reissue so we were pretty proud of that i appreciate you inviting me over here to your living room and and sharing stories come over anytime i got more stories you can tell <laughs> <laughs> and you don't live very far away that's true, that's true. i'd like to thank everybody for listening in and i'd like to thank pete for inviting me over to his kitchen and sharing these stories you can find out everything you need to know about dylan cash and the nashville cats exhibit at countrymusichalloffame.org if you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. 
If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there and you'll get a brand new episode as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.